Hey, good morning, everyone. Morning. You all get lots of sleep last night? Lots of sleep. That's why we're here. Sleep study. Um, if I, if you weren't here last night, let me just take a second and introduce myself. My name is Matthew, and um, it's a gift to be here. I was the pastor at Trinity Eastside, which became a manual for a while, and then um, stepped away from that in October. And I didn't tell the full story last night because there were tons of kids in here and it was obvious that this wasn't the time. But um, I just wanted to give a little bit of backstory. Um, so you all, we've all lived through a really terrible thing the last several years, last few years in particular. Lots of disruption, lots of tearing apart politically, biologically, um, geographically. And uh, one of the ways that hit my family was one of my kids got very, very sick. And in August of 2021, we were suddenly ripped out of like this, like, oh, okay, like we're back to normal. You know, you know, remember that like first time you like took your mask off, like that sense, like, are we back to normal? Can we do this? <laughs> we had just gotten to that place, like, oh, we're back to normal, and then all of a sudden we were in the hospital, and we spent basically the next year in the hospital, and in different states even, and it was it was really it was really hard. And after a year of that, it became clear that I could not be pastor anymore in this church that I loved so much, and be the kind of dad my kids needed, and the kind of husband uh, my wife needed. And so in October, we announced to the church, Matthew's leaving. I speak in the third person when I'm over there. And <laughs> I told everyone that I'm, I'm not going to be their pastor anymore. And it was so sad, um, because I loved it so much. And it was my dream job, and there was my favorite people in the whole world. Um, but now, as I'm transitioning away from that and into something else, um, the thing that's remained steady and constant in that, I have a lot of friends that are still, you know, on the staff there, hang out a lot. But um, the thing that's kind of been with us with this whole thing has been my community. And the reason I wanted to kind of start with that is because when we talk about relationships, when we talk about community, we're not talking about a thing that exists in the abstract. Like we're talking about a thing that is bumped up against the real life, the unpredictable mess that you and I inhabit. All of us in this moment right now are I'm not trying to scare you. We're, we're moments away, we're days away from something happening that utterly transforms the course of our life. And you have virtually no control over that. And so the question is, who are going to be the people that are close to me in that moment? I may not be able to convince those of you right now who feel like I'm relatively in control of my life. I feel pretty good about how things are going. Everything is working out. The boxes are being checked. I follow the plan. The plan is working. I probably can't convince you, you need deep, vulnerable friendship in your life. You're like, I don't. I'm doing fine. But I might be able to convince you that there will come a day in your life that you can't foresee now, in which you will. And so when we're talking about what we're talking about this weekend, we're talking about who are going to be the people that are going to be in the play-by-play -play of my life. Who are not, not auxiliary characters on the side, not service relationships, not neighborhood groups that I'm in, not people I serve alongside with kids, but who are going to be the people that are bumped up against the play-by-play of my life. Who's my 2 a.m. phone call? And this was Jesus' idea that he gave to the church. In fact, I wanted to start with this prayer that he prayed over you and me. It's pretty cool to know. He actually was praying for all the people in the room, and then he's like, and also, Father, I want to pray for all the people who are in the room right now. He says this in John 17. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but I also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. You can look at your neighbor and say, he's talking about me. Go on, do it. He's talking about you. I ask on behalf of those who will believe through their words. This is the prayer, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
So Jesus intends our relating to one another to be, um, as Francis Schaeffer would say, the final apologetic. It's the proof, it's the evidence that God has come, that he sent his son into the world. So we're going to be talking about Trinity's, what we call Trinity's fourth core commitment, to make space for meaningful and reconciled relationships. And this afternoon, we're going to get really practical, and we're going to talk about what it means to make space. But today, this morning, I wanted to begin with this sort of big picture, mountaintop view, vision. What does it mean to have a meaningful relationship? Or what do we mean when we say meaningful? Well, let's first talk about what we don't mean when we say meaningful. What are the kind of relationships that we can have that are not meaningful? Uh, the first is transactional. All of us in here have transactional relationships, most likely. You might be a neighbor and you just swap tools. It's probably a colleague at work. It's someone that you have sort of a back and forth quid pro quo with. Um, and you may not even realize you're in a transactional relationship until they decide that they no longer have any need of you, and then you're like, oh, I guess I was in a transactional relationship. Um, but that's one kind of relationship. It's not very meaningful. It's just sort of a necessity of life. It's utilitarian. The second kind of relationship we're not talking about is surface relationships. You know, these are people that you all know, sit on the, the, the Little League bench with one another and you talk about whatever is going on. Or it's the, the colleague that you go and you grab a drink with every once in a while after work. Uh, it's just, you know, we have a couple things in common and we enjoy being around. We, we, we both love the same comedian and we, we love to quote this movie to one another or whatever. All of us have those kinds of relationships. Most meaningful relationships start out that way because the thing that usually ties us to a person initially is some kind of affinity. What C.S. Lewis called the, oh wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. And when we find someone like that, we're like, oh my gosh, this is so great, we have this in common. And there might be a person right now who's in a neighborhood group, who's in one of your breakout groups here, who is like, I'm also really into English Premier Soccer. And you're like, so am I. Like, I like Arsenal, or I like Man City. We should hit each other, but we have this in common. And out of that sort of initial connection of affinity can develop something deeper and more significant. Um, more vulnerable and authentic. And then there's this other kind of relationship that appears very meaningful from the outside and often feels very meaningful to the people, but is actually deeply destructive and even abusive. I don't know why I chuckled when I said that. And that is, that is codependent relationships. Codependent relationships are when one person overattaches to another person and they begin to lose themselves in that person. They necessitate that person's approval, that person's presence in their life to feel good about themselves. Not everyone in here is predisposed to codependency. Usually you're either predisposed to some kind of codependent relationship or you're predisposed to like not being able to connect at all, feeling like you just have a turtle shell between you and all people around you. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. But most of us kind of go one way or another. We either overattach or we underattach. When we overattach to a person, we are essentially giving them power to define us, to define who we are. If you have teenagers in here, which I have two, this is the bulk of every one of their relationships. This is, this is, and we were all teenagers once, and I'm not knocking teenagers. This is, this is how teenagers move through the world. They overattach to a person, they're like, I must have your approval or else I will die. And that, and that is how they really feel, and that's how we all felt once, too, especially those of us who were in drama club. We really did feel that way. <laughs> I must have your approval or I will die. And there's always exceptions to this, for sure. Maybe your kid's the exception, but if your kid goes to private school or public school, I can almost guarantee you they're surrounded <laughs> all by, by codependent relationships. Because you just take, like, it's like a foundation, like massive, massive, like unrealistic expectations that we put on people, especially around body image. And then you infuse it with like a dash of raging hormones. You remove all self-awareness. Um, and, and then you surround them with the most emotionally unhealthy people in the world and cripple them with insecurity. And voila, you have a codependent factory that just continues to turn out codependency. 
and we can all go, oh, I'm so glad I'm not that age anymore. But a lot of us carry that right into adulthood. I know lots of adults who still live desperate for the attention and the affection of individual people, or who still live and are controlled by their appetites. In fact, it wasn't until a few years ago that I came into touch with like, just how much my life had been marked with codependent relationships. I started to learn about differentiation and boundaries, and I started reading Friedman, and I was like, oh no, this is me. This is what I've been doing my whole life. If there's a person in the world right now whose who's affirmation you must have to feel like you're okay, you're most likely in a codependent relationship, which is to say that it's a relationship that is ultimately it's destructive, and it's not what we're talking about. It feels vulnerable, it feels real, it feels like the real thing, <clears throat> but it actually is not. Nobody can answer the fundamental question that all of us are asking in this world, am I okay? No one can answer that question for you, except God and yourself, and you and God in relationship with one another. I think this is why this, Paul was not writing about codependency when he wrote this, but I think this is kind of what he's getting at when he said his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So he's like, there's a relation, there's a connection going on between God's spirit and our spirit that's like, you're a child of God. I'm like, I'm a child of God. And then he doubles down on it and he says, and so we are! It's like he needed to say it twice. Because he understands that the way that you and I work is we actually need that, that, that deep question answered in our in, in the center and the core of ourselves, and until we do, we will continue to look to other people and other things, and whether it's an individual or a profession or whatever it is, body image. That question can only be answered by God. Okay, so those are not meaningful relationships. That's not what we're talking about here. What are we talking about when we say meaningful? Um, well, I'm going to take a definition that I heard Chris give when he was teaching this in the class. I'm just robbing Chris right now. He's not here. <laughs> um, this is what Chris described as a meaningful relationship. Uh, intimate, intentional, and committed. Vulnerable, authentic, and honest. Costly and inconvenient. And marked by curiosity and mutuality. That's huge. We're not going to cover all of those. We're probably going to cover all of those over the course of the weekend. But I want to spend the rest of our time kind of pulling out some of these big ideas and asking what would... Um, what would it look like to have these kinds of relationships, relationships that were marked by those kinds of words as a part of my life? What might I be missing out on if that isn't already active and present uh, in my life right now? So the first thing we need to talk about, sort of the, I think the catch-all word, the umbrella that everything lives under is the word intimacy. Intimacy is a word that has, of course, been hijacked, not just in our day previously, but certainly in our day, it's been hijacked and it's been, it's been sh sh shrunk down to mean one single thing. Intimacy in our day and age means sexual intimacy, by and large. Um, not always, for sure, there's great, there's great exceptions to that. But most of the time, if you, you, know, if you Google search intimacy, you know, it, the things that are going to come up are, by and large, going to be sexual in, in nature. Which is really sad, because um, sexual intimacy is only a very narrow part of intimacy, and it's totally possible to have sex and not be intimate. So it, it doesn't, they don't even equate to one another, and yet, this is what our... Um, culture has done uh, to it. Intimacy, instead, is actually something that everyone can experience, whether you are romantically involved or not. It involves commitment and vulnerability and authenticity. There's this story in the Old Testament about uh, King David when he was already anointed but not king yet. Do you remember the flannel graph? So King David, he's not, he's not, um, he's not on the throne yet, and instead, who's on the throne? Saul. Good. Great. Saul's on the throne, and Saul doesn't like David, but David becomes a hero, so Saul brings David into his court, and Saul has a son, and that son's name is Jonathan. 
And Jonathan is very drawn to David. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 18.1 that the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and David loved him as his own soul. And they have this deep affection for one another. In fact, there are times later on in the story where they are found holding on to one another and weeping on each other's necks and kissing one another uh, because of how much they love one another. And then several years later, after a lot of things have gone down, Saul and Jonathan and most of their army die in battle. And David is now king. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1, he is grieving for, for Jonathan. And he says these words, Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful. And passing the love of women. Now, you might already know this. Some of you certainly do. That this relationship, the Jonathan-David relationship, has been interpreted and understood by many liberal scholars for a very long time to be a homosexual relationship. It's just how people have interpreted it. And I also want to say, in relation to this, I'm not here to talk about that. But I, for real, um, also, but I just want to, just to kind of broaden our perspective, there are a lot of our gay brothers and sisters in Christ, siblings in Christ, who find a deep sense of connection and representation in the story. I'm not here to talk about whether or not that's right or wrong. I will say this, the language at best is ambiguous, but more likely it's actually a very fully platonic relationship. That the Hebrew it seems to imply, it, it could have used other words. There were lots of words it could have chosen, instead it used very platonic words. Used very familial words to describe their relationship. Even the love surpassing the love of a woman is a different kind of love that he's talking about than the love that, say, you find in Song uh, Solomon. Well, what happens when we read something like this and we go, oh, I guess these guys must be, um, they must have had a, a romantic relationship, is that we have a hard time um, believing that two guys can be this intimate with one another and not be romantically involved, which is our fault. Because what we've done is we've taken intimacy and we've said intimacy looks like this. When actually intimacy is, let me just say, look, look at me if you're not. Intimacy is your birthright. It's everyone's birthright, whether married or single, divorced, widowed, young, old, male, female. Everyone's birthright is intimacy. Because at the center of all that exists is intimacy. We saw this last night. We can put the, the, uh, the icon back up there. This is a picture of ultimate reality. This is a picture of the creative center in which everything is birthed. Everything flows out of generous love from the triune God. And out of that generous overflow is you. And you are made, according to the Bible, in the image of this. Now, this picture is a picture. I know it looks kind of cold and European, but this, this, <laughs> this is endless eternal intimacy that's been going on forever and ever and ever. The first thing that we, when we talk about intimacy, the, well, I want to talk about this idea of mutuality. Because I think it's a very important part. It's not in one direction, it's mutual. And we see this, if we can go back to the icon, Jason, I'm sorry, I'm throwing you around. Um, the way that we see mutuality playing out in the scriptures is, is beautiful. So the first place that we really see it, in the New Testament at least, is when Jesus is coming up out of the waters, out of baptism from the Jordan, and the Father speaks from above and he says, this is my beloved son. This, point, point, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. He does it again on the mount transfiguration. Jesus, uh, later on in his ministry, will say, my father has given these things to me, and my father is greater than all. No one can take something from my father's hand. And then later on, on the last night of his life, he says, it's better if I go away, because then the Spirit will come. And then he says, this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't speak so much in the New Testament, although certainly at times the Spirit does speak. Um, we don't have like a record of the Spirit's words. 
But he says, this is what the Spirit does now. The Spirit takes my teaching and declares it to you. In other words, what Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are all doing is constantly shining the flashlight on one another. Like, yes, but, but the Son. And the Son's like, yes, but the Spirit. And the Spirit's like, yes, but Jesus. And Jesus is like, yes, but the Father. And the Father's like, yes, but the Son. And that this endless enjoyment, this mutual uh, love and joy in, in, in one another is at the center of all things. And you, um, friends, were made in that image. You were made for that, every one of you. Uh, it is your story. And when we hear about heaven, remember how Jesus describes it? And it's a, it's a great little story. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. So Jesus, when he's like, can I tell you what heaven is like? If you're an introverted here, you're going to die when I say this. He's like, imagine we all lived on the same hall. <laughs> I don't think it's totally literal. I'm just saying, Jesus' idea of heaven is fine, finally that connection that you pine for your whole life. So when we talk about mutuality, we're talking about a number of things. But one of the things we're talking about is definitely that sense of mutual enjoyment. If you don't have that, I hope you, I hope you get it in your life. I hope you find it. Like mutual, not one directional enjoyment. That's called having a fan, you know, a groupie. That's not what we're talking about here. None of us need groupies. They do terrible things for our ego. We need mutual enjoyment where I mutually enjoy. I see the things about you. I see you through the lens of God and the way God sees you. And I enjoy these things about you, and I echo them to you, and you I'll respond in turn. The other way that we express mutuality in relationships is by carrying and bearing one another's burdens. Galatians 6 2 says, uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's an incredible like encapsulation. He's like, Do you want to know what the law of Christ is? Like the whole thing? Like, yes, yeah, it's bearing one another's burdens. That's kind of like the whole game right there is learning to, co to cover and carry one another through uh, the tra travails of life. Um, later, in, uh, in, in, in Romans, Paul, a letter, Paul writes later, in Romans chapter 12, he describes it this way. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. So there's this idea, like, I lean on you and you lean on me. Like, lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. Why? For it won't be long until I'm going to need someone to lean on. So there's this sense of, like, I lean on you and you lean on me, and we're in this together, and that's how we do this. We bear uh, one another's burdens. So in the last couple years of my life, I have lived in this very weird place where I have been the burden bringer to relationships. I have been bringing the grief. I've been bringing the, like, I don't know what to do. Everything's out of control. I don't know if, if my kid's going to be okay, and so on. Meanwhile, I've had some friends who have gone through some pretty sweet seasons. Professionally, relationally, um, merrily. And we've had to do this very weird thing where it's like one of us is coming in and they're 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 like um, they're like sadness from inside out, and then they're like joy, but we're like rejoicing with one another and grieving with one another. And you know, if you're joy in that scenario, it's so easy to be like, I'm just gonna hold on to this for later. I'm gonna find other yellow people and talk about this with them. I need to be about the sad thing right now. That's what's going on. And yet, the, the, the scriptures say, no, there's a, and Paul uses the word harmony, and I love this idea of harmony because it's two notes, you know, or three, or endless. It's this idea like there's, there's, different, there's different tones being played simultaneously, and they give a balance to the relationship, and so, I just want to say, if you're one of those people right now, and you feel like you're the, you're the one in the good place, <laughs> 
Your friends do need you to invite them into your joy. They need you to do that. They may not feel like it, but if you're if you're like if you're the sadness one, you do need it. You need to not only be able to lean on someone else, but you need them to be able to lean on you. When we do this, we what? We fulfill the law of Christ. We never look more like God than when we're doing this, when we are living in mutuality with one another. The second word I want to pull out from this idea of intimacy is vulnerability. Vulnerability is like oxygen to the fire of intimacy. It just makes it blazing hot. Uh, vulnerability is an incredibly risky thing to do, and yet it is remarkably powerful. You might say, I might say, it's, it's the most powerful thing that can happen in a relationship. Now, because of that, it is incredibly dangerous. Right? Vulnerability is incredibly dangerous. In fact, Miroslav Volf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, talks about this. He's like, you know, to open yourself up so that you can embrace another person, so that you can be embraced, is beautiful, but it's risky, because this is how you get punched in the stomach. This is how you get stabbed in the heart, by opening yourself up. And that's what vulnerability does. It takes a risk for the sake of moving towards another person. It removes the barrier between me and another person and lets them in. And I can't control what they're going to do. In fact, if I'm using vulnerability to control what they're going to do, that's not vulnerability. That's called manipulation. But if I actually expose myself in a way in which this person could really harm me, or they could really love me, they could be an echo of my worst fears, or they could be an echo of God's voice in my life in this moment. That is like oxygen to the fire of our relationships. I was talking to Jason Faulkner last night. You know, He's been through the last couple of years here at Trinity piloting these uh, story groups. And some of you, hopefully, are in story groups. Um, and they're going to be rolling them out again soon. So uh, if you are interested in like, what does it mean to live vulnerably with other people and simultaneously to be going into the shadowy parts of my life that I may not have looked at because, well, there's good reason not to look at the shadowy parts of our life. But I'm going to do it in a safe space. And I'm going to learn to do this with other people. And I'm going to begin to experience some of the healing that comes only through vulnerability. You should look out for these. They'll be here to announce in a couple of weeks. But he was talking to me last night just about the, like the miracles that happen in vulnerability, because people finally, like they finally let down the guard, and when that happens, do you know what happens? This is what James says happens. James says, confess your sins to one another. Why? That you may be healed. That the way that you and I experience healing in the world, in our life, is in vulnerability. And letting people into the parts of us, the unglamorous parts of us, when we experience um, the fear right on the other side of emotional exposure. What's going to happen right here? And then we feel covered. We feel known. We feel seen. We feel loved. We feel enjoyed. It heals us. Because most of us in this room, probably all of us in one way or another, are carrying around some wound. Many of us, multiple wounds. Some of them so deep and so profound that they still shape every relationship I've ever had. The relationships I'm in right now. They shape my marriage. They shape why I'm not married anymore. Or why I don't think I ever want to be in a romantic relationship. Or why I keep having so much dysfunction in my relationships. They shape all these things because these deep wounds have been times where you and I have, whether as children, as teens, as adults, have had the chance to be loved and instead we were wounded by our caretakers, by our friends, by significant others. And in, this is what Tim Keller talks about, he's like, 
Wounds that happen in community can only be healed in community. Wounds that happen in relationship cannot be healed on your own. Reading a book, it takes something beyond that. Renee Brown, who many of you probably know from her TED Talks and her books, and she's brilliant, and I love Renee Brown, she defines vulnerability as this. She goes, vulnerability is uncertainty, it's risk and emotional exposure. It is also, though, the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, creativity. It's the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. The final thing I want to talk about um, when we talk about meaningful relationships is that meaningful relationships are uplifting or building up. There's not a good word. There's not a good English word. You know what the good English word is? It's edifying. But it's such a churchy word. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that was a really edifying time we had. No one says that except Christians. Well, only Christians say things like, let's do life, and I'm going to love on you, and I was really edified. And so we're saying, but the kinds of relationships we're talking about here are relationships that build one another up, that actually are forming something. They're not just like leaving a person where they are, but they actually are uh, partnering with the Holy Spirit in the deep constructive work in a person's heart for them to become more than they were before, to become more the, the clearer, brighter reflection of God's uh, image in the world. Now, we all know that we live in, a, in an age in a day in which building up is not, it's not the MO, but tearing down, spend 30 seconds, uh, five seconds on Twitter, and you will discover that this is the language of the world. And it's not just this. I mean, you can go back, read, read, what, read the ancient Greeks, read the founding fathers, whatever. The tearing down, tearing down has been the way that the human race interacts with one another. The church has always countered and said, no, rather than being a people who are tearing one another down, we should be a people who build one another up. In fact, Paul uh, says it this way in, in the book of Ephesians. He says, let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with which you were marked with the seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath, anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven uh, forgiving you. This is the New Testament vision of how we interact with one another. Let no unwholesome or evil talk come out of my mouth, but only that which is useful for building, uh, for building up. And I, did you see that thing in there about the Holy Spirit? I think this is really profound. When I finally discovered this like 10 years ago, after reading that verse a hundred times, uh, he's talking about all this relational sin that we commit against one another, uh, commit against one another, and then he says, "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit." Now, if you grew up like me in youth group, you heard, don't masturbate, you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that that's not also true, but the context of that verse is about what we do to one another, not what we do in private. The context of that verse is that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we do what? When we harm and bruise God's other children. In other words, what the Spirit seems to be wanting us to do is to be constantly in concert with and in agreement with what God is saying about that person, not what that person's enemy is saying about that person. You know, the, our enemy, the, the Bible calls him Satan. It's literally, the word means accuser. He's called in the book of Revelation the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ. We can either be in agreement with the voice of accusation, seeing the worst, believing the worst, tearing down, or we can be in agreement with God, who is always 
always moving towards in love and to build up. In fact, uh, this is what the Lord says in the book of Jeremiah, and I love this so much. He says, I will uh, set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to the land. I will build them up. I will not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a new heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. And it's as if Paul and the writers of the scriptures are saying, you and I have an incredible privilege in relationship. You and I get to be either an echo of the voice of heaven or an echo of the voice of accusation. And when we do this, we, we tear one another down. And when we do this, we build one another up in love. And this is moving us in the direction of eternity. And this is moving us in the direction of death. And how are you relating to one another? What is your general disposition towards people? Um, all of us, I think, find it at times, some of you, not, not everyone in here, I know a woman uh, at Emmanuel who I think has never said a negative thing about anyone in her whole life. Um, but most everyone else I've ever met, I'm sure, has. Um, because it's easy, and it's fun, and, and it feels good. Because it feels powerful. It feels good to feel better than someone else. Especially when we're so insecure ourselves, and we're looking for some way to feel better about ourselves. Making someone else look dumb is an incredible, um, it's an incredible narcotic to deal with that pain. And yet, this is, the, this is the big vision that God gives us in relationships. We're not simply meeting one another in mutuality and saying, I enjoy you. That's great. I do enjoy you. But we are active participants in God's deep and endless eternal work in a person's life to be carrying them from where they are right now into who they are meant to be, which is a radiant reflection of God's love on the earth. And when, and when we say that we need to be making space for this, what we're saying is like this is the work of humans. You know, we have a lot of different jobs. But you might say like our fundamental job is to be playing this role in one another's lives. Because, because if we're not doing this for one another, we're not going to be growing as we're meant to be growing. Because here's the deal. You and I receive millions of messages every single day that are telling us what we are, what we are not. They're, they're buzzing in our phones, they're coming on our news feeds, they're on the radio. And we're receiving these messages constantly. And what do we do to counter these messages about who we are and what really matters in life and where we should be by this point in our life? What do we do to counter them? Uh, if we're lucky, 30 minutes in the morning, reading, praying, an hour and a half on Sunday, maybe a neighborhood group. And the vision of the New Testament is like, no, we need to be living daily life with one another where we are regularly, constantly countering the voices and the messages that come from all around us and say, no, this is the truest thing about you. God says it in Jeremiah, I give them a new heart. Your job is to see the new heart in the other person and to call it out, not to agree with the old heart, not to agree with the accusation. And this is what we get to do in the long run. This is the lifelong work of friendship. And this is what the scriptures call us to make space for like, to make this a priority, if we don't make this a priority, it won't happen. We'll continue to have soccer mom relationships and gym buddy relationships and colleague work relationships. But there's something more for us. You get to be an extension of, we sing it here at Trinity, the hands and feet of Jesus. I want to be to the people around me what you want to be to the people around me. And so let's pray. If you uh, would just put your hands out with me and just say, Lord, I'm just holding in my hands my relationships. The ones that I have, um, the ones that I've lost, and the ones that I don't have yet. Lord, all of these have in them the opportunity to be um, your vision. And 
God help me. God have mercy. Help us, Jesus, to be people who see one another through your eyes, who choose to believe in the new heart, who enjoy one another, and out of that create deep intimacy and connection that heals the old wounds in our story. Help us, Jesus, this weekend to be courageous to take little steps towards others. Help us to see a person who might be sitting alone. Give us your eyes for one another so that we might be doing your work on the earth. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.